Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Where you and I have been friends for a long time, so it's not surprising that somewhere along the way, we had some run-ins with the law. Do you know what I'm talking about? I know exactly which time you're talking about. While there have been more than one, there is one time in particular that will probably forever be a highlight of my life. Go ahead and tell the story. Well, I'd rather not. We don't need to get into the details of it. <laughs> but at one point, you were up against the car getting patted down by a police officer. He was very thorough. <laughs> On a separate occasion, you'll remember that I was interrogated. I do remember. You cracked under the pressure. It's making us sound like we're like these criminals. Well, just, just juvenile antics, high school prank. Technically, we were breaking the law both times. Well, I think it's better that we don't describe the details of, of those stories. Sure. But those memories are running through my mind as we're about to dive into this episode regarding law enforcement and how that relates to collapse. I think it's a really important topic. I think there's so much relevance here in terms of what part this plays in the broader conversation. Yeah, I agree. This is going to be a really interesting episode. I do want to make a quick note that neither you or I have any criminal history. So in, in both cases that we were just describing, there were no charges filed. <laughs> Correct. So to get started with this episode, I want to revisit something that we've talked about before. And it's a chapter from John Michael Greer's book, Dark Age America. He does a fabulous job in the book giving a pretty brief description of catabolic collapse, which we have also discussed thoroughly in two different episodes. As a quick 
reminder of catabolic collapse. You know, it's basically this idea that as civilizations grow more complex, the amount of capital they have increases. And with that growth in capital, there's also a growth in maintenance cost of that capital. We've talked about how capital is a lot of different things. It's not just physical assets that a civilization has. It's also all of the intangibles, their bureaucratic systems, their law enforcement. Yes, the physical things too, like their infrastructure. So in this chapter, John Michael Greer is talking about how for a civilization that has renewable resources, if their maintenance cost of capital ever exceeds the amount of resources they have, they have to cut back a little bit until the resources fit their needs. But for a society that gets its resources from non-renewable places, this is what he says. He says, if a civilization depends on non-renewable resources for essential functions, abandoning some of its capital yields only a brief reprieve from the crisis of maintenance costs. Once the non-renewable resource base tips over into depletion, there's less and less available each year thereafter to meet the remaining maintenance costs. And the result is a stair-step pattern of decline and fall so familiar from history. Each crisis leads to a round of capital destruction, which leads to renewed stability, which gives way to crisis as the resource base drops further. Here again, human beings, given what they are, this process isn't carried out in a calm, rational manner. The difference here is simply that kingdoms keep falling, cities keep getting sacked, ruling elites are slaughtered one after another in ever more inventive and colorful ways until finally contraction proceeds far enough that the remaining capital can be supported on the available stock of renewable resources. That's a thumbnail sketch of catabolic collapse. So hopefully that idea makes sense. Hopefully we've talked about that enough in the podcast and you've listened to those episodes to see how that applies to society today and why we're headed more and more in that direction. So he then goes on to talk about in that chapter how people try to simplify society by saying that there's only two classes. We always hear about the elite class and everybody else. And he breaks down how complex societies nearly always result in a system that creates an elite class that thrives and a laboring class that barely gets by. That being said, there are levels of classes everywhere in between. So from the bottom all the way to the top, and the elite need a specific type of class in order to continue the status quo. So for in order for them to thrive off of the backs of those that are just getting by, there is this other class called the overseer class. So this is another quote from the book. He says, Every society depends for its survival on the passive acquiescence of the majority of the population and the active support of a large minority. That minority, call them the overseer class, are the people who operate the mechanisms of social hierarchy. The bureaucrat, the media personnel, police, soldiers, and other functionaries who are responsible for maintaining social order. They are not drawn from the ruling elite. By and large, they come from the same classes that they are expected to control. And if their share of the benefits of the existing order falters, and if their share of the burdens increase noticeably, or if they find other reasons to make common cause with those outside of the overseer class against the ruling elite, then the ruling elite can expect to face the brutal choice between flight into exile and a messy death. And if, if you haven't read his book or that chapter, I highly recommend that you do it. He breaks down really well what happens when the overseer class, for example, law enforcement, stop receiving the required maintenance costs to keep them running 
satisfactorily. If we consider that our police force or law enforcement is a form of capital and the maintenance costs in order to keep them running are things like pay and benefits and support and proper training, their safety, all of those things, that is all part of that capital. Well, as we continue into catabolic collapse, those functions start to erode away. And as that happens, there is potential for a loss of a functioning law enforcement. And so while there are many different aspects to the overseer class, the main subject of this episode specifically will be the law enforcement piece. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I'm glad that you bring in John Michael Greer's framework and the way that he presents it. I also remember when you were first introducing me to collapse and you were talking about complexity as a society, you know, society is able to get energy from whatever source, use that energy and create innovations in a way that frees up more time for them, which allows them to specialize. And now they can produce much more and that allows the population to grow. But at some point, as you grow, you need some sort of social order. You need organization and structure. And if you're going to have any sort of organization or structure, you need a way to enforce that. And so to me, it makes sense that a necessary part of a functioning, highly complex society includes a mechanism or or specialized personnel to be able to enforce the social order, right? The laws of that society. And I'm not saying that you have to have a police force the way that we do in the U.S. today. Like a state-backed function. Right. Yeah. But like if you're a really small civilization, a small tribe or something, naturally there are going to be consequences for those that go against what's deemed acceptable. And in a case like that, like a small tribe, it might be the tribal leader who kind of executes judgment. In some societies, it's more like self-regulating than in others. And sometimes in history, it's just a matter of who has the power, who has the resources. If you've done something that has wronged me, I take whatever adverse reaction to that that I want to, so long as I can get away with it, right? But as, as societies become more complex, it seems that it's often the case the society designates specialized roles, that there are those who are appointed in one way or another to enforce the social order, the expectations that are placed by the society, the laws, right? Yeah, great clarification. Obviously, you and I are not here to discuss the right and wrong of the way policing is. That's not what this episode is about. I think what you're saying is important, and it's that like there will always be, as societies grow more complex, a need for maintaining social order. And it's natural for specialized roles to come up from that. The way that John Michael Greer talks about it, you know, he talks about the elite class needing an overseer class to keep the status quo so that the elite class can continue to make money while controlling the masses, right? Not everyone's going to view it that way. There's differing opinions. Some say ACAB, right? Some say other things. Again, that's not the point of the episode, but it is important to know know why law enforcement happens, why we do have them, because that will help us to be able to see the consequences or what happens when they're no longer around. So along those lines, one way to think about it is in terms of supply and demand, that a society demands a certain amount of effort, a certain amount of resources in order to maintain that social order. So is there enough supply in order to meet that demand? If there's not, then social order starts to fall apart. And regarding collapse, there are stresses that can come on one side or the other of that equation that can threaten that social order. 
So we can look at it either from the supply side or the demand side. Often in a collapse scenario, the stress is coming from both angles. But let's take a few minutes and just talk about how we might see that on both sides. So when it comes to supply, there's always this struggle to know just how much funding to provide, how much resource to put toward law enforcement. It's a little bit tricky to get estimates in the U.S. because you've got federal law enforcement and prisons. You've got the spending on prisons by the state and local governments. And depending on what you lump into each of those categories can give you a different estimate. But at least $277 billion is what the U.S. is spending on law enforcement and corrections each year. And that has increased even recently. You know, one estimate from a couple of years ago in 2020 was $240 billion, which equated to nearly $750 per person in the U.S. That's about 1% of GDP. So I think it is kind of intuitive that one issue you can have is just not enough funding, not a not enough resource allocation toward law enforcement in order to meet all the demands. Another stressor on that supply side has to do with staffing and just hiring enough law enforcement personnel. And as tensions increase, there's more risk of burnout. So the National Institute of Justice actually outlines some of the most common causes of stress in law enforcement officers. They talk about poor management, There's often inadequate or broken equipment, depending on your role and where you serve as a a law enforcement officer. There's often excessive overtime, whether that's voluntary or involuntary. You've got rotating shifts, which makes day-to-day life challenging. You've got low pay. You might see, you know, especially recently, negative attitudes toward law enforcement. You feel this lack of support from the community. You have continual threats to your health and safety There's a lot of responsibility, a lot of weight there, right? There there are so many aspects to law enforcement that make it something that, you know, not that many people want to do as a career. And those that have chosen it as their career may become jaded or they may just get burned out. So when that's the reality, you can see why, especially if there becomes more demand, if there's more social unrest, you can run into a major problem. Yeah, and I really like that you've described it in terms of supply and demand. Basically, that supply side is the maintenance cost, right? It's the ability to provide the money, the ability to provide the staffing, the support, the good morale. And on the demand side, it's what's causing the supposed need, right, for more law enforcement. And so as collapse progresses, to use an extreme example, if there was a lack of food, right, obviously the amount of crime is going to increase as far as people perhaps stealing food from each other or killing for food. So as you have a decreasing amount of law enforcement and an increasing amount of need, it's just like peak anything else, right? One quick point that I'd like to make here as we talk about a need for law enforcement, a lot of people will claim that we don't need law enforcement or that we shouldn't need law enforcement and that it's our systems that we've created that that create the need for law enforcement. You know, a lot of anarchists say that if we didn't run our society the way that we run it, there wouldn't be as much crime. Like if there was more community and more mutual aid and more mutual understanding, then there would probably be less serial killers and less petty crimes and all these different things. But the reason I bring that up is to say that as collapse progresses, capitalism is likely going to double down 
it's going to cause more people to become more desperate. It's a function of our economic system just as much as it's a function of hitting the limits to growth. And so the way John Michael Greer talks about it, just going back to that, if elites need an overseer class in order to maintain the status quo, well, as they begin to watch that status quo slip away, they have a few choices. They can increase the amount of oppression, they can ignore the issue, or they can offer up some solutions. They can thrive a little less so that everyone else can survive a little more. And it seems like in today's world, the option that is most often being chosen is to oppress more, is to double down on, and we're seeing this all over the world, squashing voices, not letting people protest. We're seeing this in Iran specifically at this very moment, right? In 2020, a lot of like the BLM protests being pretty violently shut down. So there's an increase in violence that that's occurring. But that is, again, what John Michael Greer says, a harder thing for us for the state to maintain. It costs more. It costs more maintenance costs. And so as they increase the maintenance costs on trying to have a more militarized police or a more oppressive police force, it just erodes away the base of that police force more quickly. And I think that is something that you described that we're seeing now, so much negative attitude towards the police, which is causing a decrease in support and morale amongst police officers and causing more to quit, to retire early, or it's preventing more people from joining. That's a, that's an oversimplification of all of the complex things that are happening there. But yeah, no doubt we are seeing those stressors in place and increasing rapidly amongst our current law enforcement. Yeah, I think as we describe these issues, these stressors all over the world, you can probably see this. I know here in the U.S. we can see it. And so you make some great points there. And, you know, still on that supply side, there's a chance that we could be staffing law enforcement to the max and we could be putting all sorts of resources toward that staff and giving them all the best equipment. But even then, if there's an increase in crime, there might not be even enough places to keep all those who law enforcement have arrested. It costs a lot of money to have prisons and support the prisoners and support the staff that oversees the prisoners. You say that and I, I just picture like, I don't, it takes me to Les Mis and like prisons full of a bunch of Jean Valjeans who stole a loaf of bread for their starving family, right? And they're punished their entire life for that and put into a system that makes their supposed criminal activity worse. You know, there's this idea that like as things get worse, the crimes that are being committed, if they're being punished severely, they're probably crimes of people trying to survive. And so then, yeah, you talk about the prisons not being able to contain all those people. It feels like the discussion about private prisons and the for-profit prison system that we have, that's like an entirely different conversation, but it's so pertinent here as well to consider how that is a maintenance cost that we will likely not be able to continue to supply. It's funny you bring up that example because it paints a perfect picture of some of the things we even be talking about on the demand side. But even if we were only arresting individuals who had committed severe violent crimes, if there's enough of those people, there could be just a bandwidth issue. And there's a full funnel, right? Maybe we've got enough prisons, but maybe we don't have enough courtrooms and judges to be able to try those who have been arrested and prosecute them. I mean, it ties into the whole legal system, the whole justice system, and there could be a bottleneck anywhere along that way. Either a bottleneck or a continued erosion 
of what are supposed to be, you know, fair trials. If that bottleneck is too large, well, one way to get rid of the bottleneck is to just expedite the process, right? Which we'll end up talking about that a little more here in a minute. But I did want to note that, yeah, there's there's two options there. But if they do expedite that process, getting through the court system, you still have the end result of having too many people in prisons. Yeah, exactly. So having enough staff, having enough funding, having enough enthusiasm or morale from law enforcement to continue to execute what they're being asked to do, having enough places to keep those that have been arrested and, and to process those individuals through the legal system, all of those are stressors on the supply. And we haven't even mentioned the fact that the police themselves can lose trust in the system that they're supporting and lose trust in the folks that they're taking orders from. On the demand side, there are a large number of stressors, uh, potential issues we could see. One of them goes back to what you just mentioned. If people feel too desperate, then whether or not they think the law is just, they're going to be more likely to break the law. That goes hand in hand with another issue, which is if people don't agree with the law. So whether you've got people just not feeling like the law is something they're willing to support, that they feel is justified, or whether they just feel so desperate that they kind of feel forced into breaking the law, either one of those things is going to make people more likely to commit crime. If people distrust law enforcement, that's going to be another issue that's going to raise demand. And people might not trust law enforcement because they see corruption or they see that law enforcement has overstepped or used excessive force, right? There've been plenty of examples of that. And that gets really convoluted. And again, we're not going to dive super deep into that, but I know I've been appalled by what I've seen in, in certain videos of, you know, officers using excessive force. Even, you know, my wife likes to listen to these crime podcasts and sometimes I'll listen along with her and it's just ridiculous the way situations are sometimes handled by law enforcement officers. On the other hand, I also see things that I'm absolutely inspired by from law enforcement officers, from police officers. Somebody that I work closely with, her husband is a police officer. And from everything I've seen and heard from him, he genuinely just wants to help people and protect people and serve. And I see so much good there. But the point is just that as a society trusts law enforcement less and less, there's going to be much less incentive from the individuals in that society to actually obey the law. And I think an interesting point there, and one that I've heard a lot of recently, is that as the trust erodes away from the society of its law enforcement, it causes a feedback loop of the good ones to leave, right? If somebody joins law enforcement with good intentions because they want to protect people and help people, the people that they come from, right? But then they feel like, oh, I'm, I'm in a system, I'm serving a system that protects the elite at the expense of the poor from which I come. They're going to be the ones more likely to leave. The ones more likely to stay and be super successful in that are going to be the ones who thrive in the system, in that system. John Michael Greer, again, sorry, I keep going back to him, but he, he talks about how the overseer class is cut from the labor class. They're not cut from the elites. You don't see multimillionaires you know, with a trust fund from daddy joining law enforcement very often. These are working class people. And so as they watch their own people turn against them or turn against the elites, and rightfully so because their living situation is deteriorating, because they're being forced to steal a loaf of bread to keep their family alive, there will be many officers who will sort of sympathize and, and want to be with their own, right? 
And so, again, we're going back to that increase in demand of the people stealing bread causing a decrease in supply of officers willing to prosecute them, right, or go after them. One more note on that is I think we're seeing a lot of articles in the news, at least since like 2020, I've seen several of these talking about how there'll be like an officer who tries to stand up against another officer who has done something, right? They might see that they planted evidence or they might see that they used excessive force. But because there's this expectation, this sort of brotherhood that we don't rat on each other, if they do, they are basically forced out. And so again, I think that is another positive feedback loop, sort of self-reinforcing over time the quality of officers that remain and the purposes that they're there to serve. And simply as time goes on and catabolic collapse continues and we go down that stair step, I think we'll be we'll find ourselves more and more left with the ones willing to oppress in order to serve the elites and less with the ones who are there to to actually protect and serve those from from where they came. Which by the way, did you know, Kellen, that protect and serve is not actually a requirement of law enforcement? It's not it's 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 just kind of a fabled thing that they do, but it's not actually in the job description. No, I didn't know that. Although when you say what's in the job description, I'm sure that depends on each localized area, right? Yeah, I'm not necessarily saying like they wouldn't see that in the job description when they sign up. But the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled that police have no specific obligation to protect. And so while I know many go into it wanting to do that, legally, that's not technically what they're there for. Well, related to everything that you've been speaking to here, Corey... You know, if somebody is raised with this idea, this mindset that how you get by in this world is you take what you can at the expense of whoever you need to take advantage of. If, if you're raised and taught and incentivized to be selfish, there's really no amount of law enforcement that can keep up with the crime. If there's a society that basically doesn't have strong morals, if you want to call them morals, or just strong intrinsic motivation to obey the law, you're never going to really be able to have enough external enforcement, enough officers of the law, enough regulations and protections to keep people from disobeying the law. And you can build things in. You know, one thing that comes to mind, I lived in a certain part of Mexico, and I think this is true throughout the country, where there's just uh, maybe a different mindset than what we sometimes see here in the U.S., Almost every window has bars guarding it. And instead of there being police officers that might pull you over and give you a speeding ticket, there are large topes or like really massive speed bumps, even on the highway, the freeway. So people accelerate and then they slam on their brakes and they go over the speed bump and then they accelerate, slam on their brakes. What I saw from that is that it has created this mindset, at least among some there, that like if you don't have your bike chained up then that's your fault that bike is now mine right if you don't have bars on the window i guess it's open to me right and so yes they might not be spending as much in terms of resources to staff law enforcement but they're having to spend those resources either individually or collectively in other ways to try to prevent harmful actions by individuals anyways the point is if there's not a desire an intrinsic motivation from people to obey the law if that starts to erode then of course you're going to have more and more issues. And that societal, that cultural aspect, that community aspect of how you look at law enforcement is something we see stark examples of even here in the U.S. There are some pockets, some neighborhoods where it's like, hey, the police don't even go there. 
because it's too dangerous for them. Like even the little kids will be throwing rocks at the police cars. Another stressor is just increasing mental health issues. So as people struggle with mental health, they're more likely to act in a way that's contrary to social expectations. There's going to be more domestic violence and abuse, more neighborhood violence, more drug and alcohol issues. And those things are a positive feedback loop, right? As there's more domestic violence and neighborhood violence, there are going to be more mental health issues. And so that feeds on itself as a cycle. Additionally, if people don't support the current government, they typically don't support the police, or at least they're selective in how they do it. As an example, it's interesting that many in the U.S. who are the strongest advocates of the police were also those who were willing to raid the Capitol on January 6th, right? And it was because they felt like the political system was something they weren't supporting. There were issues there, and that justified them breaking the law. Even though it resulted in the deaths of five police officers on the Capitol. Right. These issues of supply and demand, we haven't listed all of them, but I think that gives a good sampling. They impact one another. And we're seeing this happen more and more in today's world where we're seeing more mental health issues, less trust in the government, less trust in law enforcement, people feeling more and more desperate. And we expect that to continue. And because that increases that demand, it causes more stress on law enforcement. You start to see more burnout, more corruption. Some of the things that you spoke about, Corey, it becomes harder as a society to give the right amount of resources and funding so these two build on each other, and many would say our current state, at least here in the U.S., of law enforcement is extremely broken. But as we see these stressors from both sides accelerate, there's potential for essentially a collapse, whether sudden or gradual, of our law enforcement system. Yeah, and I think it's important that you mentioned there, it could be a sudden collapse, it could be a gradual collapse feels like we're already starting to witness the gradual collapse. But with catabolic collapse, when we talk about that stair-step approach, some of those steps could be quite large. And in taking those steps, they can be potentially the thing that breaks or that's the final straw sort of for law enforcement. One thing that I kind of picture happening is there continuing to be a lot of continued polarization, right? Policing will become more political. We're already seeing that, for the most part, policing comes from the conservative side. And like you said, the support for police has been especially high amongst those who were willing to go to the Capitol on Jan 6. And so one worry or concern is that the police become sort of a weaponized political tool, more so than that's already happened. But that in and of itself could also cause a rapid collapse of law enforcement, especially depending on what party is in power in the United States. But one question I think is interesting to to sort of touch on is what happens when there is a lack of law enforcement? As the demand that you spoke of increases, both in, you know, things like acts of desperation to survive, but also opportunism by people who will take advantage of a lack of law enforcement, of difficult times, they'll prey on others. Like you said, there are still a lot of opportunities for violent and really heinous crimes to be committed, how is that handled in a time when law enforcement is decreasing or law enforcement disappears? So we're not going to go deep into these, but a couple to mention just sort of off the top of my head. 
militias is one. We already see that in many places, militias exist. They're growing. While there are militias coming from every side or every part of the political spectrum, it seems like the ones we hear most about, the ones that are most active, are on the right. These are the ones that we see roaming the streets at protests, clashing. There have been deaths from these involvement of militias at protests. There have been videos of them training. And a lot of them seem quite silly. A lot of them seem like it's a lot of LARPing, if you're familiar with that, live-action role-playing. And so at this point in time, it's hard to know how serious to take that type of thing. But in the event of a power vacuum, if you have hundreds of people in an area with access to firearms who say, we are organized and we're going to take control, well, that is certainly something to to consider, a possibility. We saw this a bit uh, during the fires in Portland back in 2020, where there were rumors that the fires were being started by arsonists on the left. And so there were, you know, these militias, men with guns, stopping people in their cars, questioning them as to why they were in a certain area, trying to catch arsonists, basically. So it's something that to a degree, it's already begun, it already exists. And I can only imagine will increase in a time when law enforcement decreases. Another one we hear about a lot is martial law. This is one of those that I feel like we hear extreme sort of preppers talk about a lot, as in this idea that the government, the Democrats are going to declare martial law. They're going to come after us and take our guns and, and they're, they're going to use the military to do that. But I do think that the real threat of martial law as a consequence of catabolic collapse is that it could one day take the place of existing law enforcement if it were to become ineffective or disappear. So martial law, by definition, is the suspension of normal law replaced by military governing. And when martial law is in effect, I'm reading this from a, a study on martial law, it says the military commander of an area or country has unlimited authority to make and enforce laws. Martial law is justified when civilian authority has ceased to function, is completely absent, or has become ineffective. Further, martial law suspends all existing laws as well as civil authority and the ordinary administration of justice. Now, there is a lot of ambiguity around martial law. Who can declare it? Is it legal for a president to declare it? Is it true that there is actually an unlimited authority that they can make whatever laws they want? Some reports say, you know, the U.S. president can declare it. Others say legally he can't. Nearly everyone agrees that state governors can declare it. The Constitution doesn't really talk about it. And any time it's been addressed, at least in the last hundred years in the Supreme Court, it's been pretty vague and indecisive. So what that would actually look like is hard to say, but it is terrifying to think that the entire justice system that exists now could potentially disintegrate and be replaced by the will of a military commander. There's a lot of talk within martial law around, well, they have to act within what the courts, the local courts say, if those courts are still functioning. Well, you had talked about the courts earlier. The justice system is capital. It also requires an, an immense amount of maintenance costs. Those bureaucratic processes require a lot of labor, a lot of time, technology, and just like law enforcement, they can involve a lot of corruption. So a, a loss of the effectiveness or ability of the court system, especially if there is a large increase in demand on it, if there are, like you said, a bottleneck, a lot of people that are trying to push through the court system, well, a declaration of martial law is one very quick way to be able to say you're all guilty without due process. 
there were a lot of claims. There were a lot of requests, I guess, for Donald Trump to declare martial law from his supporters around the time of January 6th, uh, in the months leading up to it as well. There was also desire for it on their part during the protests, uh, specifically for George Floyd, saying that all this unrest has to stop, send in the military. And we did see the National Guard respond a lot. In Portland, we saw sort of a secret police, right, with no insignias and no no badges, putting people in vans and taking them who knows where, turned out to be federal buildings. So you already have sort of this federal assistance, maybe you could call it, or federal overstepping into civilian authority. You know, so many of us live by this idea of being protected currently by the laws that exist. For example, I might save up food storage for my family because I want to have that in a time of need and legally no one can take that from me. But under martial law, if it was because of extreme circumstances and there was no food available in the grocery stores, there is nothing stopping a soldier from knocking on your door and saying, it is law that you give me any extra food that you have and we will deal it out evenly to the whole community, right? Martial law doesn't necessarily have to just have an effect politically. It also has many sort of personal security concerns and and personal liberty concerns as well. Other things that can happen, one that John Michael Greer mentions is foreign takeover. In the event of a power vacuum, th- this would be more if the entire government is failing, but there is always the opportunity for others to take power of a place. And he talks about how in many instances, people w- will accept that, maybe even accept that with open arms, if whatever power is trying to take the current power's place can provide more for the people. If people are suffering to such a degree that they can have some of their burdens lightened by the new authority, they will bow to it. The very same thing could be said about a militia that knocks on your door, right? Hey, we can provide you safety. We've got other resources that we can provide you that will make your situation better than it is now. Well, many people who are trying to protect their family are going to say yes to that, right? So anyway, that's a long way to say there's no way to know what will come of a power vacuum like that in the future and how it will be filled. One other option to mention here is that of more of an anarchist view of what policing should be and this idea that, well, if the system collapses, maybe it doesn't need to be replaced, at least not replaced in the way that we currently view law enforcement and power. Perhaps a community can come together and create neighborhood watches, right? Local systems for deciding what is and isn't okay, and how to respond when, you know, how to mediate when somebody has wronged somebody else. What exactly that looks like, I don't know. But it does reinforce the idea that community is so important. If there is trust in a neighborhood or in a community, you are more likely to be able to help each other, to protect each other, to build those systems as the need arises with each other, rather than letting your neighborhood or community fall victim to another power grab. Well, as you describe all of these possibilities, it makes me think of, you know, what I envision, what I think is a probability. And I don't think either you or I, Corey, are saying that suddenly one day you'll wake up and the police force will have vanished. It will have just disappeared. I think as things get messier, uh, more difficult, you'll see pockets, areas where law enforcement is functioning at its best. Others where there are major struggles and maybe militias are rising up other areas where things are a total mess and the federal government is stepping in and there's some degree of martial law 
And the word that keeps coming to mind is that it'll just be messy with likely more and more demand as things become more desperate and a faltering supply with multiple factions making an effort to step in and meet that demand. I think we've had a taste of it the last couple of years here in the U.S. You mentioned Portland. You mentioned a lot of the protests that have taken place. We mentioned the insurrection. We've, we've talked about all these examples just recently in which we've seen civil unrest, social upheaval kind of increase. And we've seen that our law enforcement system as it stands struggles to handle those situations. Most often when there is some sort of upheaval, the response from law enforcement is to crack down harder, which typically makes people just more upset and they push back harder, right? And it can be this continual escalation. And I worry that we'll see that more and more. I mentioned we've had a taste of it, but you look at what's happening in Iran right now, and that's a much more extreme example. Again, there's an uprising. People are upset. Those in power try to crack down with law enforcement and they implement really severe measures, which gets people, you know, that I think the hope there is that it will subdue the people. It will kind of beat them into submission. And yet often it makes people that much more upset and increases the level of rebellion. And so you can only imagine as there's increasing natural disasters and food shortages, as there's more polarization and political instability and all the other things we've talked about along the way, this issue of law enforcement is one more ingredient in this really sticky recipe. Yeah, you've abstained from using the R word there, right? Revolution. And it's been said time and time again that the U.S. is not in a place where there is any hope for revolution, mainly because the majority of people are not suffering to a degree that that's a viable option, that the results of a revolution would, in their current level of consciousness, be better than what they have now. But that won't always be the case. You know, you've just described that as catabolic collapse continues, as conditions get worse for more and more people, as the middle class erodes, more people find themselves struggling financially, as we see upward pressures from climate change, food availability, resource, you know, energy availability and costs, the willingness of people to put their lives on the line to stand up against that will increase. We see that right now in protests over the last couple of years because of oppression that has come and specifically in policing. But if we can imagine that type of anger being tenfold, right, or a hundredfold, and the pressures that that would put and the, the responses that might come from the government, local and federal, it's not hard to imagine the things that we've talked about today coming to pass. You know, I mentioned just a minute ago the importance of community. And I want to mention it again, that I think it is so crucial that you get to know your neighbors, those around you, you build trust, and that you learn who you can trust. This is a topic that Kellen and I are diving more and more deeply into in our own time in preparation for our next podcast. We recently sent out a survey to our patrons about what they're hoping to get from our new podcast on resiliency, and we received a lot of really great feedback. Regarding our Patreon account, Kellen and I talk about a lot of current events as they're happening. We touch on news articles that happened this week. We get a little bit more personal. We discuss a bit more our more objective thoughts about the future and, and what may happen. We'd really love to see you there. You can find our link to Patreon in the episode description. It's been a while since we've asked this, so if you haven't left a review for the podcast, please do so. 
It's a huge help to those who are investigating if the, if the podcast is worth listening to, to be able to see others' thoughts and feelings around the content. Thanks so much for being our listeners, for supporting us, for being here for us. And we look forward to another conversation next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.